The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and one magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 52 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Totally aware that the truth is out there, but that it's going to take forever to find it, and I got 90s comics to read. I'm Adam. And Michael isn't able to join us tonight since he became the subject of a high-level government cover-up of unexplained phenomenon and has been sequestered in an underground bunker at an undisclosed location. Luckily, joining us tonight are our very own Mulder and Scully who are working the case of the Kennedy Conundrum. First up, it's the writer and director of the film UFO Club, which hopefully has an X-Files reference somewhere in the movie's runtime. It's Steven Sapellis. Howdy. It has plenty of X-Files references. <laughs> Good. Up the wazoo. Actually, that's where the greys like to stick it, isn't it? <laughs> Damage control. Damage control. Damage control. Next up is his partner in life and imaginary FBI investigation, a gal who is never a skeptic when it comes to Scully's awesomeness, which is why we have to believe the intel that tells us that she is secretly the campaign manager of the Jillian Anderson for Queen of the Galaxy initiative. From the Fangirls Library and Audio Fanfic podcast, it's Annie Flowers. Glad to be here. Those of you who listened to our mini-episodes, as everyone should, will recognize Annie's voice from our sadly departed Hunk of the Month segment, or the Batman Returns edition of 90s Super Cinema, and Steven is her husband. Is, is that how you introduce yourself in public, even if she's not there next to you? Hey, I'm Annie's husband. Nice to meet you. Typically, yes, yeah. <laughs> she's the more popular one in the neighborhood than I am. Oh, I guess that's true. I know all the moms, yeah. You know all the moms and dads at the school, and I'm just hey guys i was at work well you're well known around these parts we were aware that this x-files issue of wizard was coming up eventually and we booked you both together for this event about a year ago so we're excited to finally arrive at this momentous occasion but annie we gotta get things started here we're gonna open up the file all about you tell us your origin story Okay. Ooh, where do I start? Well, let's start here. So prior to dating and eventually marrying Steven, had you ever read a superhero comic book of your own volition? Superhero, no. So what comics were you reading then? Probably X-Files. Definitely X-Files. Makes sense. Yeah. Shocker. Shocker. <laughs> that, no, not a single superhero comic? Did you ever read an Archie comic? No. Whoa, oh not even Archie. Grew the Wanderer? Any Grews? No. <laughs> what about a Mad Magazine? Um, maybe Mad. 
Not sure about Matt, then you must have been reading Cracked magazine. Definitely Cracked. I don't know what Cracked is. Oh, my God. She was born in communist Romania and then immigrated here. So she does not know a lot of the pop culture references that you and I know. From a certain time period. From a certain time period. So it's always very funny to me when I say something like, oh, yeah, Cracked Magazine. And she's like, I've never heard of that. (laughs) And I'm like, Sylvester P. Smythe? He was like the Alfred Newman ripoff? Come on. Sorry, guys. I mean, to be fair, my wife, born and raised in America, I don't think she would know what Cracked Magazine is either. But let's move into TV and then we'll talk about your favorite show in just a minute. But, you know, Stephen, definitely a heavy TV watcher as I was as a kid. So uh, do you know about a certain TV movie that both he and I love desperately? Generation X. Have you seen it? Do you like it? I've watched it since meeting him, marrying him, but not before that. No. No, the the funny thing about that was uh, you and I, Adam, like when we did that Generation X podcast, we did like the deepest dive where I was watching it like three times a day, just on a loop. And so then I made Anna watch it. And the funny thing was, is that they filmed it in Vancouver and had the same casting director as the X-Files. So she was watching it being like, oh, that person was on X-Files. That person was on X-Files. That person was on X-Files. Which was exactly what happened when we watched the 1990s It movie or miniseries. So that was filmed in Canada also. I never knew. I got the two tape VHS over here on my shelf. And the original home-recorded VHS when I watched it the first time. And Cigarette Smoking Man plays the school principal. Scully's sister is in it. Yeah, anyway, but not not to derail from that, but I'm just saying this is like a common occurrence for us where we watch things. I'm like, that person was in X-Files. That person was in X-Files. Wow. Now, one production I don't think could afford anybody from the X-Files universe was the Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie. You have to have seen that. Have I seen the whole thing, Steven? <laughs> yes, I made you watch it when I bought the Blu-ray. And I watched that, the whole from, thing? From, from the doomed site. Yeah, we sat down and watched it from, from beginning to end. I and I kept I kept apologizing like every five minutes. I was saying, <laughs> I'm sorry I'm making you watch this. I'm sorry I'm making you watch this. I'm very sorry. <laughs> but this meant a lot to me. I'm very sorry. And you said it was pretty good, unless you lied to me. No, I don't think I lied. I just don't remember everything. <laughs> Well, there can be no doubt that there's one series you'll never forget, and that is The X-Files. So we have to know, how did you first discover it? Why did it become your number one program? Yeah, um, I I remember seeing the promos for it on TV when I was about nine years old, and I was like, oh, well, that looks lame. I'm not going to watch that. (laughs) I know, I know. And then my cousin and a very good friend of ours uh, were telling me one day, oh, you have to watch The X-Files. You would love The X-Files. And I was like, all right, I guess they're telling me to watch it. I will. And I did. And then they regretted it for their, the rest of their lives because I never shut up about it after that. And why did it become such an obsession? I don't know. It was possibly part of it was the Scully effect, seeing someone so competent and strong and awesome and badass in an authoritative position. Uh, she's a woman of science. Um, I liked all the mystery. I definitely like things with more of a sci-fi edge to them i mean david and jillian are hot so like you know kind of all these things yeah i saw your smile steven (laughs) it was the perfect souffle of hotness and (laughs) sci-fi yeah exactly so all these things kind of like came together and it was a really formative age i don't know maybe i watched silence of the lambs when i was too young and this was like this is just like silence of the lambs but you know a little less creepy i don't know i don't know what it was wow you know what i never made that connection i don't spend that much time thinking about x files but yeah jodie foster and jillian anderson playing basically the same kind of character 
Well, if you look at Gillian Anderson in the first episode, she's modeled after Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs. Anyway. Hello, Clarice. You're going to learn everything you never wanted to know about the X-Files. Apparently, and I'm looking forward, yeah, to getting into that. Stephen and I will share our familiarity and our origins with the X-Files a little bit later. But first, can you just tell us, in your opinion, what is the best, like, expanded universe version of the X-Files? Is it novels? Is it the comics? Is it video games or something else? You don't want my answer. It's just the most embarrassing, nerdy answer on this earth, and no no one's going to like it, but it's fanfic. I'm sorry. I know, like, some of the comics are great. The books are okay. It's fanfic. Yeah, that is your claim to fame. That is the world that you live in. So how did you discover the world of fan fiction, and specifically for the X-Files back in the day? It was in the 90s. It was so long ago, I don't remember. I must have stumbled upon it and was like, there's more? What? There are more Mulder Scully stories? And I'm sure whatever I read was terrible. I don't remember much of anything that I read from the 90s and then took a long break after the show kind of like fizzled out. Even the second movie didn't bring me back. And then the revival came and that, I'm sorry, Stephen, that was really just the nail in the coffin for me. It was funny because when we first started dating, Anna was uh, staying at my apartment and I only had a TV VCR in my room. And I was like, I could put something on if you want. I have like this tape. I have this tape. I have the X-Files. And she's like, oh, sure. Yeah, the X-Files. Yeah, I guess we could watch that. (laughs) And she didn't tell me that she was like this diehard obsessive about the X-Files. And even her in her parents' house... (laughs) Under the guest bedroom is a collection of all of her X-Files memorabilia. Oh, All the God. guidebooks, the action figures, the comics, the like the trading the video cards, game. the video. Oh yeah, the computer game. So we have a lot of that in our house now. But it was just like discover discovering that your wife was this secret nerd about one specific thing. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, the thing is that no one ever wanted to talk about it, so I just learned not to talk about it. And at that point in my life, I, when I met him, I wasn't thinking about it. It wasn't on the air. I hadn't read fanfic in years. So I was like, oh, yeah, whatever. It was a part of my past, and I didn't really think about it. And now, well, that's changed, and I'm sorry for everyone. Well, we are happy to talk to you about it tonight. And, you know, back in the day, it seems like there had, had to be some sort of, like, fan communities. You could have had an X-Files pen pal or something like that. But Wizard had it as well in their magic words section, so it's time that we get into... Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. So since this issue features a non-comic book cover, we're going to focus on the non-comic book letters in the Magic Words section of the magazine this month. So here's the first letter. Dear Wizard Guys, in issue number 48, David Nugian said that Star Trek sucks and Star Wars rules. He then compares Star Trek to Star Wars. Hmm, let's review. The Star Wars world is made up of two trilogies, one in the books and one in the movies. On the other hand, Star Trek is comprised of over 325 TV episodes, seven movies, and much more storylines. To prove my claim, let's examine each on the following points. Oh, boy. (laughs) Launch. Star Wars started with a book, which later became a trilogy in the 1970s. Star Trek started as a television series, which premiered in 1966. Star Trek has been around longer. Past. Starting in 1977, George Lucas spawned three feature films, each released in three-year intervals. 
In the meantime, the Trekkers have released six feature films, the first of which appeared in 1979, and have also unleashed Star Trek The Next Generation TV series, which started in 1987 and aired for seven years. And don't forget the crossover feature film. I'll never forget Generations. Present. Star Wars is nowhere to be seen, but Star Trek is releasing its first Next Generation film. Also, the Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager TV series have just been born. Future. No word from Star Wars. Meanwhile, Star Trek is yet to explore either Deep Space Nine or Voyager. Also, more films are on the way. Don't get me wrong. I do not dislike Star Wars. I actually enjoy it a great deal. Star Wars has accomplished a lot, namely three motion pictures that are both enjoyable and durable. But Star Trek has accomplished so much more. Bobby Meta, Carmichael, California. Careful what you wish for there, Bobby. More Star Wars? <laughs> It'll never end. And maybe do some fact checking there because, you know, like he's saying that, oh, Star Wars was based on a series of novels or whatever. But I know there was some confusion back in the day just because uh, when Star Wars was coming out, they released it as a novel. My understanding was that was how you did things to essentially establish legitimacy with an audience like The Godfather had been based on a novel. So, oh, it's a big deal. It's literature brought to the screen. Well, wasn't there like a like a follow up novel called Splinter of the mind's eye that came out after star wars yes which would have made a pretty cool sequel yeah we're going we're going deep down in the nerd hole so deep annie anything you're gonna drop on us here about star wars yeah i'm, I'm sorry not my genre or not my fandom i should say well it's definitely what this guy was all about so what did wizard have to say in response here annie so to which they respond i don't think you gave the star wars franchise full credit They've cranked out a lot more than you mentioned, including a number of novels, comic books, and even some stylish Burger King drinking glasses. Of course, Star Trek has done the same, and they've even thrown in a handy Klingon to English dictionary. No argument here. Star Trek beats Star Wars nine ways till Tuesday in terms of pure volume. But it's really nothing to get upset over. Worry about it too much, and you might start writing letters like this next guy. This was definitely a dead period for Star Wars. I mean, like this guy saying, there was nothing going on, whereas Star Trek was really hot at this point. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely very little Star Wars media other than the Dark Horse comic book, and then they had just released the action figure line to kind of build up the momentum again, but that was it. And he's actually also a big Trekkie, by the way. So I do I can, love Trek, yeah. I can add her on another fandom. <laughs> okay, so we don't even have to ask that. There's no competition Star Trek versus Star Wars. Oh, yeah. Trek all the way. But Stephen Jim McLaughlin was alluding to an even crazier letter coming up here. So what did this next fellow have to say? So, dear wizard, what I'm about to say, stupid as it sounds, actually makes sense. Does anyone notice that Chewbacca the Wookiee is constantly strutting around naked? I mean, it's not like he's got a zipper on his fur coat, does he? There has to be some reason why no one in Star Wars notices, right? Please answer my question. If I'm right, it may be that when Chewie's standing there and he starts making those weird noises, he's actually saying, Hey, everyone, look at me. I'm book naked. <laughs> Frank Turby, Yorktown Heights, New York. Can I just ask why you used your Homer Simpson voice? <laughs> uh, I was just trying to do like a Chewbacca growl. Mm. Like, because Chewbacca's like, <laughs> but he'd be like, Hey, everyone, look at me. I'm book naked. Which is weirder. So. Yeah. I mean, had you ever considered before, dared to ponder that Chewbacca was actually just naked throughout all the films? You know, he's furry. I don't know. Yeah. But so are some men. <laughs> <laughs> 
And there's well, still he's naked. like a big animal. He's not going to wear clothes, but he he's needs a, his armor, whatever that metal thing is across his chest. He's a Wookiee. He's not a big animal. He's you know his own race of people. You're right. I'm sorry. And he has a he has a wife and a and a child. Does he? Yes. And a father-in-law that lives with them who likes to watch questionable VR content. Yeah. No, really? Yeah, the infamous holiday special is all spent on the Wookiee homeworld. Oh, yeah. okay. Itchy, okay. right? Isn't his son named Itchy? No, no, I think Itchy is the grandpa, I'm pretty sure. Uh, what's the kid's name? It's Very Little Rascals. I'm looking it up. Lumpy? Lumpy. lumpy. Yeah, Little Lumpy. Which, incidentally, also the nickname of Bill Murray's character in Scrooged, but I digress. Uh, Andy, what did Wizard have to say in response to this? To which they reply, good point. And while we're at it, why is the only article of clothing he wears that silly metal band that goes over his shoulder? What's that thing for? Is it like a utility belt? I've never seen him use it. Some 70-foot furry aliens just don't know how to accessorize. <laughs> I had assumed it was like weapons or something. Yeah, but he never he never uses it, yeah. It's probably snacks. Wookiees get hungry. Some Ewok jerky, maybe. But that seems like something stupid that, like, J.J. Abrams in a sequel would be like, now we find out what the belt does. <laughs> well, in that case, then it's pork jerky. You know, you got to update it. Pork jerky. <laughs> exactly. It's like, we never cared before. We don't need to care now. Come on. Someone we need to explain cared. everything. I don't need to see the Kessel run on film. Leave me alone. Well, guys, if it was revealed, I'm sure it would be the headline on some nerd news site. But as it stands in 1995, we had to settle for the old school with... Our top story tonight, Marvel and DC held a press conference at a Planet Hollywood restaurant location to officially announce their collaboration on the Marvel vs. DC four-issue miniseries event. Representing DC Comics was Superman editor Mike Carlin, who said, quote, I predict that it's going to be a close fight. DC has been there longer, and we have survived worse than this. We'll be a benevolent winner. Marvel's Mark Grunewald said he hoped the fan voting would be well thought out. Quote, if they really think Batman will find a way to beat Captain America, vote that way. But as the longtime writer of Cap's adventures, Grunewald quickly added, quote, Captain America cannot be beaten, so Captain America would win that one. Garib Sheamus was on hand for the event, as were a Wonder Woman costume character, and hey, our recent guest on The Wizard Files, Stephen, Jerry Colpitz, where in the webs is Spider-Man? Jerry! That's awesome. And the first of many, many more appearances in the pages of Wizard in the years to follow, man. Speaking of Spider-Man, this is not a good segue. As part of a tie-in promotion for the release of a digitally remastered VHS set of the original Star Wars trilogy, Kellogg's has teamed up with Dark Horse Comics for an exclusive free comic book giveaway on their Applejack cereal boxes from September through December 1995. A spokesman from Dark Horse clarifies... The only purchase they have to make is the cereal. It's not the case of now you have the privilege of buying this comic for a buck and a half. These days, the comic is offered on eBay for as high as 195 bucks graded and as low as 9.99 ungraded. That's interesting. I don't remember the comics on Applejack's boxes, but obviously the VHS release was a huge deal at this point in history. Yeah, just in the drought of Star Wars, it seems like, you know, the world of comics and home video colliding maybe would have stood out to you, but nothing, huh? No, no, but I, but it, this is when I, you know, really got into Star Wars was around 95 when I picked up these videos. Because, like, I'd seen it as a kid, but it didn't have the impact that it did when I was, you know, 14. 
those videos famously have Leonard Maltin interviewing George Lucas, and George Lucas is wearing this very obnoxious turtleneck, like, up to his chin, <laughs> and talking about this grand plan he had for, you know, the nine chapters, and he thought he'd do the middle trilogy. It's like, you're full of shit, George. <laughs> None of this is <laughs> and true. And Steve Jobs wants his turtleneck back. <laughs> exactly. Goodness. My turn. Archie Comics has announced that they are spoofing the X-Files as part of World of Archie number 18 in a story called The X-Folders. Archie and Veronica will also be battling UFOs in Super Teens number four. Meanwhile, Topps Comics is releasing X-Files Special Edition number two, which collects issues two through six of the ongoing series based on the hot Fox television show. According to the Wizard Market Watch section, once the third season of The X-Files began, the price of issue number one shot up to $40, and issue number two is selling for $15 at this time. It's reported that the sci-fi TV show has given Tops its strongest, continuous, bestseller to date. Wow, I mean, that just speaks volumes to The X-Files' popularity and quality of the comic. Yeah, no big deal. Did, did you have that Archie comic, Anna? I did not. Clearly no. not. No. You need to get on that one. You know what's funny is is the Archie comic book is called The X-Folders. And Anna, what was The X-Files translated to in Romania? I don't know. It was The X-Documents. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. How did, how did you remember that and I didn't? I just remember like like the weird foreign translation for The X-Files, The X-Documents. So pretty close there, Archie. Yeah. All right, next up here, the Blue Angels, the famed stunt jet flyers for the U.S. military, are getting their own comic book from Pepper Pike Graphics. It's reported that everything in the Blue Angels comic, from story to art, was double-checked by the Blue Angels themselves. Says writer D.C. Agle, quote, We're the only comic book approved by the Pentagon. The Blue Angels were actually a really big part of my childhood. I grew up near several military bases, and so they were flying around all the time, but especially at air shows. And Annie, I know that you actually went to college in my hometown, according to Stephen. Yeah, Irvine. And so the reason they are so ingrained in my mind, in my childhood, is that uh, when I was seven, my friend had a sleepover party, and in, in the morning, we went to an air show. So we're walking around, seeing all the jets parked, but then there were all these stunt flyers. The Blue Angels were among them. But somehow, during our travels, I got separated from the group. I got lost. Oh, so no. I was just, like, crying. I was hiding behind a trash can, and then the security guard came and took me on a golf cart to the lost found for kids uh, which is like the shack at the end of the runway so I had to sit there for hours while I'm sure my friend's dad was losing his mind And uh, but it was a great seat to see the Blue Angels like fly right over me and stuff so uh, I actually just also picked up a VHS copy of like the history of the Blue Angels so they've just been all over the place for me lately <laughs> that's cool so finally it's reported that while Jeff Smith creator of Bone was at a comic book convention in the UK, a fan came up to his table and asked, so how about the new Phony Bone CD? After giving the kid 20 bucks to go buy a copy for him, Smith realized that this album by British band 8UP featured unauthorized art of his comic book character on the cover. After giving it a spin, Smith thought, man, I really like their music, but I'm going to have to sue them. The matter was <laughs> resolved without going to court when Smith contacted the record company who said they had purchased the art from a graffiti artist not knowing it was copied from the pages of Bone. 
Well, it's interesting, right? Because I know that there has been, you know, comic book art used on rock album covers of like Joe Satriani surfing with the alien for a time. They were allowed to have the silver surfer all over the cover and the booklet art and things like that. Not anymore on reissues. Uh, but then like things like Thin Lizzy, I don't think that was officially comic book art, but it was very influenced by comic books, their breakout album. And then my buddy Galen was just telling me the other day that the ACDC album Ball Breaker uh, featured features all sorts of Marvel Comics art from actual Marvel Comics artists inside the booklet. So just really interesting that synergy between, you know, pop music, rock music and artists, whether it's authorized or not. I mean, look, we, we had to review Bone for the, the for this podcast. If I were Jeff Smith, I would just be happy that people cared. But hey, you know, that's me. Zing! All right, but let's get into our table of contents here. Now, issue 52 of Wizard with the December 1995 cover date features two different cover designs. The first is a Dale Keown image featuring Pitt. Yes, that big gray monster. He's trick-or-treating. The second is an X-Files cover by Mirren Kim, who had been doing the cover art for the Topps comic book series. And this is actually pretty hilarious here because Garib Sheamus was maybe not 100% on board, according to to his letter uh, from the publisher here. The Big Cheese said, When I heard we were doing a major feature on the X-Files TV show, I was really hesitant. I know the TV show is hot and the comic book is selling well, but I really wasn't a fan of the show myself. But in the final analysis, I know people really like X-Files. Unfortunately, I never really gave the show a good shot. I'm usually out partying in New York City on Friday nights, and most of the Wizard office really likes it, so I thought, what the heck? Anyway, I really hope you like it. In the end, I think it can about great yeah so (laughs) what the hell is that that is a backhanded compliment if i've ever heard one (laughs) i guess it's good but i'm too busy partying whatever so according to Garib, a big hit in the wizard offices, but was it a big hit in comic shops? Well, according to the wizard big book of covers here, it says an experimental cover. Normally we stress bright spandexy superheroes, but here we went with a darker, more abstract image featuring Agents Mulder and Scully from the X-Files TV show. It didn't sell as strongly as we'd hoped, and from then on, with some exceptions, wizard would stick to superhero specific covers. So yeah. That's interesting because... This is one of the comic book covers of Wizard that I remember the most. Like, this was definitely one that I sought out. I guess I didn't realize that there were two different covers, but I definitely would have bought the X-Files one over Pitt. It's actually funny because Garib had much nicer things to say about Pitt and Dale Keown. Oh, he's a friend of mine, blah, blah, blah. Uh, But I also wonder, with the X-Files comic book, I have a feeling like it probably brought over more viewers of the TV show to read comic books, but maybe it was not a two-way street. It wasn't bringing over the comic book readers to then go and watch the show. Maybe they just bought it for collectability. Sure, yeah. But included with this issue, there were some goodies. We had a Spider-Man mini-comic, which was basically just like a primer for Ben Riley taking over as Spider-Man, just recounting the Spider-Man origin, but then what happened with him. Uh, there's the Marvel Masterpieces 95 Wolverine uncut promo card sheet. So it was basically like just showing the different artists, their renderings of Wolverine in the set. There was a Star Wars Galaxy trading card, because we just cannot get away from Star Wars in the issue and an AOL subscription disc because it was 1995 yeah you had to have an AOL subscription disc whether it was in your magazines or your mailbox I remember those Annie who was your preferred internet service provider at this time we didn't only use AOL we used oh god 
Prodigy CopyServe. Uh, not that one. It started with an N. Netscape Navigator. Net. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that sounds <laughs> okay. right. Yeah, so it was whatever, you know, we had at the time, whoever sent us the discs, and we just had like a drawer full of them. I was definitely in the X-Files AOL chat rooms because I remember someone uh, sending out like a file of uh, promos, like someone would put like the promos on like, like, and so, you know, I would spend, you know, six hours (laughs) promo for an episode (laughs) to watch 15 (laughs) seconds. Then I'd be like, wow, look at this. Do you remember the way that photos used to load little by little? You're like, oh, I'm halfway there. Yeah. Kids yeah. today don't know that, oh that my pain. God, the pain. Waiting for a photo of Pamela Anderson to load. <laughs> Hulu thanks you for that plug. Or David Duchovny, I mean. <laughs> Speaking of waiting for those things to load so you can open them up, our cover story is titled Opening Up the Files, which is an interview with X-Files creator Chris Carter and the show's star duo of David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson. Carter makes a statement about his sci-fi drama that a lot of comic book fans could probably relate to. Quote, This show has been like a secret vice for a lot of people out there. There's nothing like the disappointed feeling you get when your secret vice has been discovered. Then Duchovny adds, Calling us a cult show is just a way of saying we have a small audience, but our audience really isn't that small anymore, is it? So let me ask you this then. For you, do you feel that uh, it was something that was like precious to you and when it went out to the world, it wasn't as special anymore? Or were you happy to be part of like a larger community? Like, do you have that type of fandom where you kind of want to keep it to yourself? I don't. I, I think I feel that way more about music than I do about the TV show. Like, I know the secret music. Nobody else knows it. And it's so cool. But with X-Files, I'm like, finally, you people are on board. Come on. <laughs> I've been saying this for years. So I don't I don't know how Steven feels. I like things better when no one likes them. Mm. Yeah, me too, to a certain extent. And I felt like when X-Files became too, like, you know, when X-Files became too popular, and they moved it from Fridays to Sundays. It kind of lost that eerie, weird charm where it's like you discovered it. You know, you know who's at home on Friday nights. <laughs> I said home not, on it's Sunday not fun. nights, too. I mean, whatever. I know, but it's not cool people that are home on Friday nights. It's, you know, nerds. That's who it was for. So let me ask this, then. Aside from it moving to Sunday nights, what was the sign for you that the hype was real or that it was expanding to a larger audience? Like, what was the high point of saturation for X-Files in your mind? Um, I will say there was a point at the very beginning of the fourth season when you knew that there was a movie coming out and you were like, well, if there's a movie coming out, it's it's got to be a hit. Um, but they're like their their clothes got better. David and Jillian's clothes got better on the show. They got better hairstyles. Like you knew that they were stars at this point. And that's when it probably hit its peak between the fourth season and the movie. And then hmm, after that. <laughs> Well, I I know that for me, it was when The Simpsons decided to do an entire episode based on the X-Files. Mulder and Scully actually appear. You know, like if it was deemed pop culture relevant by The Simpsons, that was the uh, stamp of approval I needed. There was also around that time, there was like a double-sided TV guide cover for David Duchovny's face. And one half was the hot side, what? and one half was the cool side, and it was like blue and red. And if you got the two covers and put them together, it made David Duchovny's entire face. And I just think that's that's a clear sign <laughs> that you're popular. 
So, you know, another thing for me was when it finally got a spinoff because like I was home on Friday nights for the most part uh, and I was not watching the X-Files only if I wasn't watching TGIF or I was bored with what Urkel was up to. I would flip over for something different. But when they got the Lone Gunman series, then I started watching because I was like, oh, funny X-Files? Yeah, I'm on board for funny X-Files. I was kind of disappointed it didn't last. Did you you watch the whole thing? Most of it, yeah. We have it on DVD. Oh, nice. I didn't know that was ever released. I never sought it out. It was just living in my memory. Don't don't seek it out. It's not worth it. <laughs> Doesn't <laughs> hold really up. Not huh? worth it. No, I mean it's weird because I love I love the Lone Gunman. They were my favorite characters in the show, and I you know I was excited for a TV show version. And I I think I didn't see it really until DVD because it was kind of hard to find. But yeah, it's not great. Well, the other burning question here going on in the world of X-Files was the uh, whole will they, won't they with Mulder and Scully? Are they going to get together romantically? And at the time of this article, the X-Files was in its third season and uh, Gillian Anderson explains, quote, everyone is in agreement that it wouldn't benefit the show to have them get together. If it ever happens, that would be the last show. And Duchovny's take is that, quote, having a friendship and professional working relationship with a woman is much more interesting. It's very easy to jump into bed. That doesn't take much imagination. So, Annie, you deal in the world of fan fiction, where it is definitely a lot of Mulder and Scully together. Of course, the pair did eventually end up as a couple in a relationship on the show. But for you, was that the death knell? I mean, was that the end of quality programming, the end of the excitement of the X-Files? I don't know. For the fans, I don't... It's a loaded question. It's hard to say because they didn't, they really didn't get together until the seventh season and David Duchovny was already leaving at that point. And I really think that that, that was like the end of the show. Was So it was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that it's like, yeah, well, let's do that. But then I'm out of here. Yeah. But I think they could have gone on with the show with them together. Like, don't make a thing of it. Like, oh, they're fighting. I don't, we didn't want to see, well, I didn't want to see a soap opera. Like, they're together, they go fight the aliens, and it's all good. Just, like, show me the aliens, and they're happy together. The core of all successful romantic relationships. This has been one of, like, the big arguments of a relationship. It is not an Because argument. there's this Debate, whole thing. Perhaps. There's this whole, like, subset of fans that are called the shippers who want Mulder and Scully to get together. Who and won, the no- by the way. Who won. <laughs> Hold on. We won. And, and, the, and the no-romos. Who, who don't want them to get together. The no-romos? <laughs> so there are shippers and no-romos. I didn't know this was a thing until I met Anna. I'm a no-romo, Anna's a shipper. We've made it work. But can I just say, my <laughs> argument has always been it would be the end of the show if they got together. And then I realized years later that I was just quoting what I read in this Wizard article <laughs> as a 14-year-old. I was like, oh, that's where I got that argument from. It was in Wizard. Okay, if I may respond, if I may respond. A rebuttal. A rebuttal. We first coined the X-Files, P-H-I-L-E-S file, coined the term shipping. It started with us. People shipped before, but we coined that term. Thank you. I just want to put that out there. Thank You're you. welcome, world. Yes. But we won. That's it. We won. <laughs> 
Did you? Did you? <laughs> well, and in that vein, I have to ask, because I know at this time, I have heard the rumblings back in the day of something that was called slash fiction, often related to Star Trek and connecting various members of the Enterprise crew there. And so that was a thing. And that is the world that you live in now, is this fanfic that is very much, you know, the romantic uh, machinations. But I know that it gets a little steamy sometimes, and you don't have to give us all the details. Mm, too bad. <laughs> but, you know, like, what is probably, like, the wildest story or just kind of, like, the weirdest uh, fanfic you've come across? Okay, there, I can think of two really crazy ones. So I was doing some research. We do, like, a top three uh, every couple weeks or so. So top three, you know, Melissa fanfics. Melissa was Scully's sister. Top th- Anyway, so we were doing top three nineties fix. And I came across this very early story from like 94, 95 and Mulder and Scully, it starts off great. Mulder and Scully get abducted. They're on this ship. It's pitch black. They can't see anything. And it starts off really interesting. And all of a sudden they like start tearing each other's clothes. Off. Oh. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I think they, they're weightless at a certain point <laughs> and they're still going at it. I'm like this, it was bad. It did not make my top three list. And then I read one. Today, I don't know if I can say the one from today. <laughs> you can say it without saying the... Uh... Uh, can you help her, Steven? Can you properly edit this down? I mean, I can say it. Should I say it? I mean, you can I mean, there, there's ways to say it. <laughs> I don't know did, how to say you it. You did ask me. Who's the center of attention in this family? I mean, Scully. Like, okay, Scully. It involves Scully and multiple partners. The lone gunman? Are they, are they involved? <laughs> You know what? I didn't read the whole thing because it was weird. <laughs> yep, there you go, guys. If you never do, now you do. So read your read your fanfic somewhere. Now there is also an interview sidebar with the crew behind the Tops X-Files comic book series. Uh, They basically say, you know, it's been a runaway hit. It was number one on Wizards' top 10 comics rankings. Uh, The group basically says they work very closely with the TV show to make sure the stories fit the tone of the series. It's also mentioned that Wizard will be offering an X-Files half issue in issue 53, which we actually sent to Annie for her collection quite a while ago. So what did you think of this story? I thought it was pretty good i find that they're never quite up to par with the show or maybe i'm a little spoiled with specific fanfic stories and i'm not just talking about msr which would be Mulder scully romance just in general i i do read a lot of case files and i think they do a pretty good job but so the official fanfic doesn't quite get it for you the, the comics were never my favorite like i i read some here and there but i never made it a point to collect them Well, that being the case, though, maybe if you were to revisit them now, maybe they would scratch that itch for you. Because I will tell you guys, I was recently at a comic book store I had not been to before. And as I was digging through their back issue bins, I found the mother load. Yes, check it out here. Issues 13 through 20 of the X-Files comic book in great condition. A lot of those look familiar. And not only that, but a sealed copy of the official X-Files magazine. Whoa. Okay, so this is coming your way, Annie. This is for your collection, and uh, whether you hide it under the bed or not. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That's that's awesome. That is quite the loot. And those comics were so hard to find when they were new. Like that's what, yeah, that's why I never, I never really Mm -hmm. got them because you couldn't find them anywhere, and then they were priced up 
quite a bit. Well, and what's interesting, one thing we were reading about in the magazine recently is they were also putting out a smaller, like, Disney Adventures-style digest. And so I thought that was interesting. They were collecting stories and putting them in a smaller format. But finally, moving away from the X-Files here, our other cover story titled Mystery Man is an interview with Pitt creator Dale Keown about the recent changes in his life and as a comic book publisher. More about that in a second. Uh, the interviewer, Jack Curtin, admits that he had only seen a single old photo of Keown in Wizard Magazine on the top 10 hottest artists list, where he's shown as a, quote, gaunt-faced guy with shoulder-length curly hair and huge tinted glasses, his features dominated by a wide and slender Slightly maniacal smile, uh, but the short-haired guy without specs in this article looks like, personally, if you ask me, he, he should be on like an episode of Melrose Place or Friends. He's just got that 90s, you know, white guy style. Uh, apparently, for the past year, there were rumors of Keon being dead, in jail, or rehab because, quote, his creator-owned pit from Image Comics has been one of the most consistently late and erratically published titles on the market. What's his excuse? A self-proclaimed perfectionist, Keown notes that, quote, Before this, I was just an artist. All I had to do was worry about getting the art down on the pages. Once I became a businessman, too, I had all this other stuff I had to worry about in addition to the work. There's also the revelation that, quote, I did indulge myself a little too much after the first issue came out. His indulgence, you ask? Top-of-the-line music equipment and recording an album with his band who he called The Pit Crew. It was 10 songs equaling 42 minutes of music that was, quote, postponed indefinitely at this time. Though there are a few tracks on YouTube now, and actually, we use one of them as the music when we read ads for sponsors on the show. Oh. So Keo promises to be more professional now, having just broken ties with Image, based solely on understanding the process of what it takes to put out a comic on your own. Not any ill will, he says. Uh, but he's going to be working with veteran writer of Howard the Duck, Steve Gerber, and inker Dan Panosian to get Pitt on a bi-monthly schedule. It's mentioned also that Keon hasn't had much criticism the way the other Image creators have, you know, been tacked in the media for being late and stuff. He says, quote, I think my readers stay with me because they sense that I really care what the book looks like. I try to put everything I can into each page. So the question becomes at this point, Annie or Steven, do you see the appeal of Pitt in any way? I mean, Brad. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say it's probably not for me. Big gray Hulk-like monster. Yeah. yeah he's like a to total Hulk ripoff. I mean, Pitt is an alien, though, so he could have been on an episode of The X-Files. And that could have been interesting. I'd, I'd be down for it. Plus, Dale Keown is Canadian. Oh, you know, you he could have said, yeah, oh, you're filming in Canada? Well, then I got a character for you. And Steven, hero illustrated, never convinced you to pick up an issue of Pitt. I never did. And I knew who he was a lot because of Wizard, but nothing about his very intense look or style or hair ever really appealed to me. 
What's interesting is that Pitt actually had a little kid sidekick named Timmy that he palled around with. I actually have a madman uh, legendary comic book heroes action figure. The Build-A-Figure was Pitt, and it came packed in was a Timmy figure with Madman, which if you didn't know either of the comics, you might have thought, oh, Madman has a kid sidekick? I didn't realize that. That's kind of funny. Okay. No, I mean, you know, like characters like Bad Rock that I saw appealed to me more. He just seemed like a more interesting looking creature, concrete, uh, those kind of tragic monsters. So you did like big gray characters in comics, just not Pitt. Yeah, no, I, I guess so. It was just like, you know, like kind of the tragic monster was more interesting to me than the uh, angry dude. But I'd give it a shot. We will await your official report. Someday. But what's next here? Tales from the Crypt is an interview with legendary comic book writer Alan Moore, creator of Watchmen and writer of celebrated DC titles like Swamp Thing and Batman the Killing Joke graphic novel. Moore had a critically acclaimed run in the 80s, but then abandoned mainstream comics due to business disputes with DC, mainly over the rights to Watchmen. When asked if he would ever work for DC again, Moore declares, no, not unless they gave me back all the work, which I consider is morally mine. And then we'd start from there with some completely different rules. But that's never going to happen. It's kind of my bad British accent. (laughs) Uh, Reflecting on uh, happier days, more notes. I'd been reading DC Comics since (laughs) I was seven. And it was great to have a chance to play in that universe, which I did. They let me go berserk eventually. Moore gained acclaim for deconstructing superheroes and putting them in shockingly adult situations. But he is quick to clarify I think I've, I'm, I'm going to drop the accent now. I think I've always been fairly affectionate with superheroes. I know I've got a reputation for doing horrible things with them, but just because you do horrible things with somebody doesn't mean you don't like them. <laughs> okay. After leaving DC, Moore did in, independent comics like From Hell about Jack the Ripper, which was adapted into a very terrible movie, but now has suddenly come back to mainstream work on less critically respected comics like Spawn, Shadowhawk, the Max, and Wildcats, explaining, I was getting a bit bored of the image of me as this terribly serious comic book icon. It's been really fun doing these image comics, just doing these stories that are meant for entertainment. Also, there was the money, of course. I'd be lying if I didn't say that was a factor. (laughs) I like his honesty. But then again, I've been offered plenty of big money jobs that I've turned down for lack of interest. If it was only the money, that I wouldn't have turned down writing the RoboCop films. Moore also likes the attitude of the image creators. I admired that, that they'd gone out on a limb, set up a publishing company, and really screwed things up for Marvel and possibly DC. I thought that was really <laughs> funny, you know? I like the trouble, <laughs> troublemaker <laughs> aspect of image. Yeah, I was just like, Alan Moore's like, yeah, let's mix it up. Make it difficult for DC and Marvel. That's funny. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Annie, have you gotten familiar with the works of Alan Moore? Yeah, I, I've heard of something, yeah. Didn't read a lot, but yeah. We watched the Watchmen TV series together on HBO. That was excellent. We did, and it was great, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty good. I mean, definitely not at all related to anything Alan Moore did, and he likes it that way, always distancing himself from any adaptation. I mean, I gotta say, though, I didn't mind uh, the Zack Snyder movie. I mean, it's a very, very faithful adaptation, and uh, as long as I'm watching, like, the full cut, like, you know, like the five-hour cut or whatever it is with everything inserted, then I'm happy. You're a masochist. You're a true masochist. (laughs) 
Well, and I, you know, I think it's so interesting just to see Alan Moore in this light, right? Because he is considered so dark and mysterious and deep, and then he's working for the most shallow of companies just to have fun, just to make a little money, you know? And he would do it for quite a while. Yeah, and and this is when he was writing that 1963 series as well, right? Right, yeah, which is great. That's like totally for him, just a nostalgia trip fun. But I mean, he wrote Supreme. I mean, he just, he wrote so many things at Image for quite a long time and took that money, you know, keep cashing those checks. <laughs> Go for it, Alan Moore, whatever you got to do, right? But next up here, there is a, I guess you would call it maybe a reaction article based on some of the comments made in here. This is First Look, Kingdom Come, which is a brief piece on the upcoming Elseworlds tale of a possible future of the DC Universe by Alex Ross and Mark Wade, but for those expecting another Marvels, the writer says, quote, the only thing this story has in common with Marvels is that Alex is painting it. Essentially, it's the Image Comics universe taking over the DC universe. You can tell the heroes and the damage and the human life are so far down on the list of priorities that they're bringing the world to a pretty quick ruin. So the story basically just tells the tale of the older DC heroes returning to teach these young punks a lesson in heroism, you know? So, Stephen, I know you had some some thoughts about this particular series as a follow-up to Marvel's. I was really excited for it. And especially I remember this article and, and kind of the designs of the characters. I thought Robin looked awesome. And then when it eventually did come out, I feel like I was a little disappointed with it. It was a little grim. You know, it, it almost reminds me now of how, how Marvel and DC is in, in like the cinematic universe where Marvel's had its dark moments, but it was this kind of bright fun, poppy kind of take on the Marvel Universe. And then Kingdom Come was dark. And, you know, it looks, it's beautiful to look at. Uh, the designs are really great. It just like kind of uh, unnerved me a bit as a youngster. Yeah, and I feel like it's got to be on the horizon over at Warner Brothers. I mean, they bring Zack Snyder back into the fold. This is 100% the story that he would want to tell. He kind of already did it with his Justice League cut, you know, but it just feels like eventually they'll get desperate enough to hand it off to him. Okay, you can do Kingdom Come. Uh, you know, it's because it, they did CW shows. They brought in <laughs> Ben Routh as the Kingdom Come Superman. He looked great. I mean, that, that design is incredible. And Brandon Routh was perfect for that role. So I could see them kind of expanding that into a movie. It'd be pretty, it'd be a cool movie. Yeah, I mean, that was really neat. I mean, ideally, if Christopher Reeve hadn't had his accident, if the timing had just been a little bit better, I feel like, you know, a year or two after this, when Kingdom Come has been celebrated, if they could have brought him back, it would have been awesome. And then, you know, get Michael Keaton back in the bat suit like it just it would have been a great great story to tell but but at least now we're getting a little bit of that dream fulfilled with the Flashpoint movie yeah I know and and those kind of those set photos have, have leaked it looks pretty cool Speaking of more Batman adventures, though, I did have to bring this up here because there is another quick preview piece called Halloween Night, K-N-I-G-H-T, and uh, it is about a new collaboration between Jeff Loeb and Tim Saul, and it says here, Batman eats some bad shrimp and has some pretty bad dreams in the third <laughs> annual Legends of the Dark Knight Halloween special featuring those nasty villains, the Penguin, Joker, Poison Ivy, and according to writer Jeff Loeb, a mystery villain to be named later. So yeah, so it's literally like he eats some bad shrimp. That is not a joke. That is the story, okay? 
did like Alfred serve it to him? Who's who's feeding Batman bad shrimp? <laughs> I know, Alfred, you're supposed to be on top of this. <laughs> you have one job, Alfred. But as far as how it plays out, uh, Tim Saul says here, Jeff had the idea that he wanted to do a version of A Christmas Carol. My first reaction was that everybody and his mother had done it, but the more we talked about it, the more the idea really seemed to fit Batman. The story lent itself to the kind of tortured personal stuff that we really like to do with Batman. Yeah, tortured personal intestines, maybe. <laughs> You know, I have not read this yet, but who knows? Maybe after the Matt Reeves, the Batman, this is the next story to get adapted. But speaking of Hollywood taking comics to the screen, Steven, it's time for... Heroes in Motion. So Edward R. Pressman is touted as Mr. Comic Book Movie Producer in this interview, which features a picture of the man who looks like the most intense high school principal ever. <laughs> uh, after having produced Conan the Barbarian with Arnold Schwarzenegger, The Crow, which earned $100 million, and Judge Dredd, which only earned $34 million. I was part of that $34 million. I saw that in theaters. Now the toy company owner turned Hollywood producer is planning to adapt more comics to the screen. Of course, the sequel to The Crow is in the works, but also a fully animated ElfQuest movie. About this, Pressman says, I think the marketplace will determine the level of technology we can use, given that ElfQuest is not a brand name classic story like Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin. Next up is a Luke Cage film by John Singleton, starring Lawrence Fishburne as the hero for hire and featuring Moses Magnum as the villain of the story. Pressman says, that comic that comes out by Marvel when the film comes out will be the story in the film. Finally, The Mutant Chronicles, which is based on a role-playing game from Sweden. Of all these announced projects, only The Crow City of Angels makes it to theaters. Wow. It's weird because he produced Badlands, the Terrence Malick movie, which is like, you know, one of the best movies ever made. And then, yeah, and then he produced a lot of uh, other not great movies. He did Island of Dr. Moreau oh. and Street Fighter. <laughs> Entertaining in their own ways, some might say. Yeah, and... Crow Salvation, Hebrew Hammer. Uh, so, yeah, the second season of the Fantastic Four cartoon is announced to feature guest appearances by Daredevil, Black Panther, Silver Surfer, Nova, Frankie Ray, Kathy Ireland as Crystal of the Inhumans, Richard Grieco as Ghost Rider. Oh, it gets better. And the Incredible Hulk voiced by future Hellboy Ron Perlman. Uh, showrunner Larry Houston also promises cameos from Marvel characters such as the New Warriors, Vision, and the Scarlet Witch, She-Hulk, and the Scarlet Spider. Wow. I mean, it makes me want to go see now if that second season is on Disney+. Plus. I never had really any desire to go back and revisit them, but if there's all those cameos, that's pretty neat. Scarlet Spider. You know, I'm not sure how many are on Disney+. Plus. I don't think it's all of them, but the Daredevil one was on there. I could be wrong, but it didn't seem like the whole thing was on there. So Wesley Snipes continues to build buzz for his live-action Black Panther movie project, saying, We're still developing it. It's coming. Definitely it's going to happen. <laughs> and we have another one called Blade, which is a Marvel Comics hero. That's kind of like a crow type of hero. He despises vampires. So he just kills them on sight. Every time he sees one, a fight breaks out, and he kills them. Yes, that one will be a real family-oriented film. <laughs> For the kids. Uh, it's funny because obviously Blade is the one that happened. And, and, you know, I keep wondering why they don't bring Wesley Snipes into this Black Panther Marvel universe after all the work he did 
in the 90s trying to actually get a Black Panther movie made. But, you know, I'm also not Kevin Feige, so I don't know. Uh, finally, in video game news, a Green Lantern video game is nearing completion by UK-based software developer Ocean for the Super Nintendo. According to Wizards report, originally the game started Hal Jordan, but when he became the villain Parallax in the comics, they had to redesign the game to be about my favorite Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner. Unfortunately, this game is never released. According to Brian Cronin at CBR.com, DC Comics demanded that the game be redesigned again in the wake of the Zero Hour event, but the project heads refused and were fired, taking most of the game with them. Although another programmer eventually finished the game, by then the Super Nintendo was no longer a popular console, and Ocean decided not to release it. Uh, it says I'm going to cry a single tear for what could have been. <laughs> yeah, I was bummed. I, I remember seeing these pictures and being really excited for a Kyle Rayner uh, video game. It would have been cool. I had the Super Nintendo at this time, and uh, I probably would have just bought it, like put it on my Christmas or birthday list and hoped uh, I got it as a gift. I'm pretty sure there's some gameplay video on YouTube right now. I will seek that out. I will look for that. There was also like they had like a Kyle Rayner Green Lantern watch in one of these like a wristwatch. Oh, cool. Advertised in Wizard. And I've looked at for that on eBay multiple times and have not been able to find it. So I weep for all the lost Kyle Rayner merch. Another unfinished and unreleased project is a Lobo fighting game for which a screenshot is featured in this issue showing the main man facing off against Santa Claus as Lobo did in his famous holiday special issue. I'm glad that never happened. Enough of Lobo. And issue 52 also features a casting call for the characters of DC's Vertigo line. So let's take a look at some of the ideas Wizard had to mix comics with the movie stars of the 90s. Yeah, so, you know, this was their Halloween issue, so they were trying to keep it creepy, so they went with a Vertigo casting call. So let's see here. First up for the Spectre, they have to say here, Don't piss this guy off. DC's very own Spirit of Vengeance would be perfectly and spookily handled by Ian McDiarmid, who you'll probably remember as that evil emperor from Return of the Jedi. So definitely just a case of, oh, pale guy in uh, some type of cloak or hood. Yes, that's the guy we want. There you go. John Constantine. Seeing as how the facial appearance of Swamp Thing's most annoying friend and star of his own comic, Hellblazer, was actually based on pop singer Sting, we figure he's pretty much got a lock on the part. And the fact that he's acted, well, okay, appeared in Dune and The Bride certainly helps. So that one's just baked into the pie, right? Because that's like Samuel L. Jackson becoming Nick Fury. They drew him into the Ultimates comic and then they make the MCU Nick Fury. Yep, just get Sam Jackson. In this case, Sting should play Constantine. <laughs> This next one here is very similar, just the picture matches for Dead Man. I love this casting though, so hmm, dead and bald? After some heavy thinking, we figured William Sadler from Die Hard 2, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey would be absolutely perfect. Just don't try giving him a Melvin. <laughs> <laughs> Melvin. It's actually a really good match. Yeah, I mean, he played death, so be dead man. Tim Hunter. Small, meek, plenty of magical potential. We immediately thought of Josh Saviano. Oh, nice. Best known as Kevin Arnold's friend Paul Pfeiffer from The Wonder Years. I love that. Yeah, you need a nerd with glasses? Josh Saviano. He's like the living Millhouse. <laughs> yeah, they also yeah, cast him as Millhouse in, in the Simpsons movie when they did that. That and the rumor that he grew up to be Marilyn Manson. <laughs> we loved that rumor. <laughs> that was the rumor? 
Yeah, some people said it was Josh Saviano or Rob Stone, the brother, the older brother from Mr. Belvedere. That was the rumor back in the day. But speaking of demonic presences, next up here, the demon. Gone, oh gone, oh form of man. Give me the lead or this film's in the can. <laughs> Our rhyming spot of hell is a perfect role for Lewis Gossett Jr. from an officer and a gentleman in Iron Eagle who already played a scaly-faced bastard in Enemy Mine. So there you go. And we got Zatanna. This magical maiden would be brought to life by the hot, 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 hot. Did we mention she's kind of hot? Jennifer Conley from The Rocketeer and Career Opportunities. She just better be wearing them fishnet stockings. Ooh, <laughs> oh, boy. They're very horny. I was actually just watching my uh, VHS copy of Career Opportunities the other day, and I have to say 13-year-old me agrees. But moving on here. For Preacher, they say, since he's currently having such a major comeback, welcome back, Connor, and Pulp Fiction's John Travolta would scare the bejesus out of you as the preacher with the honest to god commanding voice that would be good really ah. i mean i think at this time he, he would have been pretty good i mean to me the character just looks like bob dylan but i guess bob dylan's not much of an actor so travolta would have to do moving on phantom stranger comic extraordinaire steve martin parenthood the jerk would be great as the mysterious freak who pops up all over the place whenever something really really bad happens i love steve martin come on steve martin's great it would have been a very interesting portrayal to be sure uh finally here for the good guys wesley dodds the golden age sandman they chose albert brooks from defending your live broadcast news the scout he has that down-to-earth look needed to play the golden age sandman and bring you some pleasant dreams again i think that would have been a quirky choice and definitely would have led to some interesting moments in the film. Now, the last thing they had here was a casting call for an entire vampire biker gang of girls. Uh, this was from a comic called Vamps, which I talked about on a previous episode recently. I'll just go through real quick because nobody's going to know the characters to compare them. But they wanted Elizabeth Berkeley for at this time Showgirls and Saved by the Bell. They wanted Shannon Doherty. They wanted... Tracy Lords, Tawny Katane, and finally Christy Swanson. Yes, Buffy the Vampire Slayer herself. So I feel like that would have been a really interesting grouping uh, if they got their own movie, especially nowadays on some, uh, you know, HBO Max series, probably. That's something. But, you know, if any of these Vertigo-based movies ever got produced, they probably would have had some trading cards, because every movie had a trading card back in the day. So it's time that we open up a pack of Gambit's Deck of Cards. So, Annie, did you ever collect trading cards of any sort back in the 90s? I mean, I just had the X-Files. Makes sense. Yeah, I've opened up a couple packs of those, and there's some pretty freaky stuff in there. Close-ups of the creatures. Yeah, but I didn't quite so, know what yes. to do with them. I never traded them. Yeah. But on the flip side, Stephen, for you, how many trading cards did you buy back in the day? Oh, my God. <laughs> like, hundreds upon hundreds. I mean, from, like... You know, we started with baseball cards, and it was every movie card set. So Dick Tracy, Gremlins, we had all those sets. Every Batman card set, so Batman, Batman Returns. Yeah, oh my god, my brother and I were just, like, obsessed with any trading card set. Garbage Pail Kids, wacky packages, and then, yeah, all, like, the Marvel and DC cards. 
So yes, a, a lot, a lot. Well, it sounds like you're about to get a lesson in 90s comic book trading cards, so good luck. Take it away, Eddie. All right. So first up, Wizard is offering exclusive Marvel overpower cards for the fourth issue in a row. But this time, it's a full set of what they are calling placards. Basically, they are double-sized cards that can cover up your smaller cards during a game and are declared to be tournament legal by FLIR. So, (laughs) all right, there are three different groups of 13 cards that can be ordered for $4 each or all three groups for $10, but you have to include 10 wrappers from overpower cards for each group you order. I have no idea what I'm even saying. (laughs) It's very entertaining. (laughs) No sense. All right. It's like reading Uh, a foreign language. Yeah, it really is. I'm sure this is what Stephen feels like when I'm talking about UST and RST and non-con or whatever I'm talking about. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what you're saying. Yeah, I know. Oh, so I know. Flair, I know what some of those are. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. You should know the first. Anyway, anyway. So Flair was getting money from collectors either way. It's also announced that overpower cards will be packed into boxes of very, very kick cereal. I understood that last line. <laughs> so, Annie, just to clarify for you, overpower cards, if you've heard of Magic the Gathering, they were Magic the Gathering for superheroes. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I had a friend who played, but I never got into that world. Sure, a friend. <laughs> anyway, All right. neither here nor there. <laughs> and if you weren't already sick of overpower being crammed down your throat by Wizard... It's reported that the first expansion set for the collectible card game called Power Surge is being released to include 21 new heroes and villains with Doctor Strange, the Scarlet Spider among them, as well as various new missions and power-ups. There is also now an overpower hotline where players can call with questions on rules of play and how to set up tournaments. I think you need to call that hotline, Annie. If you have to call a hotline to learn how to play, maybe it's too complicated. (laughs) Yeah, for personal experience, I would agree. Yeah, hotlines were all the rage back then, though. Like, everything in a hotline. That's true. Back in that point. I used to call up this one number on Long Island to get wrestling rumors. (laughs) Call the Long Island ladies. (laughs) Not that kind of... It wasn't a fanfic. I used to get rumors about wrestling. It'd be like... Shawn Michaels is going to pin British Bulldog and become the Intercontinental Champion. But it wasn't like Sergeant Slaughter or Captain Lou Albano giving the rumors? No, it was just some dude on Long Island. Sergeant Slaughter's <laughs> going to get pinned and blah, blah. So just some guy who was trying to make money set up a hotline and It wasn't even gave making credit. money. Like It was free. Whoa, that's rare for that yeah. kind of deal. Yeah, my friend Vinny tipped me off. He said, call this number and, and tell him, you know. <laughs> of course, it's a guy named Vinny. For the wrestling rumors. And I would, you know, every Tuesday they'd update it and you'd get like a whole a guy's like voicemail basically saying, you know, for three or four minutes. Oh, you hear what the wrestling recorded rumors recorded voicemail. Okay. Yeah. And like if, if like one of your, you know, like if my grandma called in the middle of it, I had to hang up, give the phone over to my parents and then start from the beginning again. Different time. Different time for sure. But uh, Stephen, I feel like Annie's head is spinning. So why don't you give her a break and tell us about this next bit of news? Please save me. In in what seems like a case of always late to the party, Wills Portacio is releasing an all chromium 107 card set featuring his Wetworks characters with art by Jim Lee, Kevin McGuire, Mike Waringo, and others. Sam Keith has a set of foil stamp the max trading cards being released featuring guest artists like Jim Lee, Mike Allred, 
Simon Bisley, and more comics pros. And not to be left out, Rob Liefeld has a 99-card all-chromium Evangeline set based on his new Angel Warrior comic book series. This set features art by no one you ever heard of, except for an artist only listed as Lee, which may or may not be Jim Lee. Could be Tommy Lee or Lee Merriweather. For all we know. <laughs> but speaking of variety there, Andy, why don't you close out this segment for us? Sure. Finally, the issue also featured ads for DC Comics Power Chrome Legends 95 set from Skybox, Marvel Masterpieces 1995 from Fleer, GoldenEye movie cards, as well as Garfield and Betty Boop card set. Everything had a card set. Seriously. The Desert Storm Gulf War had a card set. Really? Uh, yeah. I was just going to say, Anna and I were at a thrift store recently, and I pointed out the Desert Storm cards to her, and I guess she doesn't remember that. When was this? I haven't been in a... Wait, when did we go to a thrift store? I don't remember this. We went to a thrift store, like like the smaller one across from Goodwill, and I said, oh, look, Desert Storm training, uh, trading cards. And I was like, see, they it made those. It must not have computed. You, yeah, I pointed them out to you, but that's okay. <laughs> Awkward. Not that big of a deal. On the trading card front, guys, I just want to remind you all that I am now part of the TRN TV, that's the Retro Network YouTube channel series, Wax Pack Flashback, where we open up vintage trading cards. I'm having a lot of fun over there. Open up random stuff like Deathmate trading cards and Death Watch 2000 trading cards, these obscure, forgotten 90s comic book trading cards. Uh, all also, stuff like Batman, Saga of the Dark Knight cards, which were featured in Wizard, and very special coming up here, Marvel vs. DC cards, as well as Amalgam cards. So if you're not subscribed yet, go on over to TRN TV on YouTube and make sure that you are there, because I have so many more to come this year. It's been such a fun series. But, you know, I'm hyping it up here. Speaking of two guys who love the hype, it's time for Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. Right, so in Todd's ego column this month, wait, stop the presses. Jim Lee is back to drawing comics? It's true! After a one-year sabbatical, Jim Lee is returning to draw issues 6 and 7 of Jed 13, for which there is a full-page ad in this issue. He'll also be drawing part of the Grifter-She crossover hardcover due out at the end of 1995. Glad to have you back and working, Jim. And just to give you a little perspective here, Annie, Jim Lee was just one of the hottest artists ever that he took a year off to spend more time with his family. Aww. Everyone needs to do that, Stephen. <laughs> I would love to get your off. <laughs> I know. But getting back to Todd's ego column here, a show I'm sure Stephen watched plenty of back in the day, tabloid TV news program A Current Affair did a segment on Spawn Comics where a mother named Dr. Mary Ahmed Williams was waging a one-woman war against Spawn due to its depiction of lynchings and racism in a story involving the Ku Klux Klan. McFarlane was interviewed for the piece but says the producers were very selective in what sound bites they used. Quote, going through it, you could say, 
that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. Of the slant against him in the editing, Todd explains, it's the number one selling comic book and somehow they miss the fact that the main character is a black man. Which, according to McFarlane, was the point of the story with a racist character being turned into a black man and then being lynched by his fellow racists. So yeah, it's a very intense story. I'm not sure why Todd thought he could get away with it, except that he says, quote, I have a certain line that I draw that I think is responsible. My line doesn't always match up with everyone else's. Yeesh. That sounds intense. He does expound a little bit more with his experience with the current affair, uh, professing that the media needs to stop looking at comics as dub stories for little kids and to represent the medium like a video store that has a variety of entertainment for all ages. Todd makes the case that, quote, the bad things aren't necessarily wrong to show. After all, how can a kid discriminate what is good and bad if you don't show both? So some thought-provoking stuff this time around. Uh, again, I just, I don't know. I think Todd sometimes thinks his storylines, his thought process uh, of putting them together is a little bit more deep or that he has a perspective to share that that maybe is not for him. I mean, Steven, did you give Spot a chance with storylines like this? Uh, <laughs> I mostly avoided anything that seemed dark uh, or controversial in my comics as a kid. Would your mom have waged a one-woman war if she found this issue? No, not necessarily. Maybe just thrown in the garbage. But uh, I mostly stuck to DC and Marvel. Uh, so yeah, they're kind of watered-down version of uh, controversy. <laughs> But in less controversial Image Comics news, the Eric Larson CD-ROM comic book anthology collects uncut versions of all the Savage Dragon comics up to issue 10, along with his other books like Freak Force, Vanguard, and Super Patriot, plus bonus sketchbooks and behind-the-scenes drawings. Yes, Eric Larson was blazing a trail into the world of digital comics in 1995. And just to give you kind of a little bit of perspective on this one, Annie, Eric Larson has continuously been writing and drawing this book since 1992 so for 30 years he's been doing the savage dragon oh wow it's like it's chris that carter he still has readers oh Sorry. he doesn't know how to end things that's a chris carter joke x-files callback for everybody there but Sticking with our tech talk here, uh, there's also several sets of screensavers being released featuring 50 images of Gen 13, Wildcats, Savage Dragon, and Youngblood comics from Image, priced at $19.95 apiece. And I'm going to admit, I had Fairchild from Gen 13 as the desktop on my PC uh, in junior high. I actually have video footage of it still from a skit I filmed with a friend where he was playing a nerd, tic-tacking away on my computer, and there she was, so... <laughs> <laughs> Who was on your desktop background in 1995, Eddie? I mean, probably David and Jillian. I do that not recall. Right. Yeah, I, I probably made my own somehow, yeah. But I didn't know that you could pay for screensavers. That is not something I would have done. Yeah, I'm pretty sure mine was not official. I either scanned it on my mom's computer or grabbed it off some very early website. But Steven, what did you have on your desktop background? I'm pretty sure I had like a Back to the Future image of Doc and Marty. 
It's a huge that Back is. to the Future fan. That's cool. And you know, we were lamenting the loss of the never-produced Green Lantern game, but there is a Wildcats video game that has been released for the Super Nintendo, and it is being promoted here saying that it will be priced at $69.99. And there's also an ad for a Spawn video game on the back of this issue, so most likely I'm going to say it's selling for the same price. So the Image guys just had to cover all bases, right? Video games, toys, trading cards, cartoons, they wanted it all. Profit, baby. Yeah, where was Rob's profit video game with all the shooting and the muscles and the yay? That would not have been profitable. Ah? <laughs> well, as we close out here, I have to ask you, Annie, uh, we've talked about a lot of things you do with the X-Files, and then a lot of stuff you had no concept of at all, so was there a storyline or a character or some news that stood out to you that you learned an amazing fact about the world of comics in 1995? That they had their own magic-type game. I had no idea. And it sounded really complicated. Interesting. Well, call that hotline, I guess. <laughs> How about you, Steven? Did you have a takeaway? I mean, you had parts of it memorized, so... Did you no, learn anything about s- the X-Files? Uh, just that no Romos were right. Uh, <laughs> there there was nothing that I learned new. Yeah, because like you said, uh, this is one of my favorite issues uh, growing up, so I had read it cover to cover multiple times. I didn't know that the Kyle Rayner game was on YouTube. Because there was no YouTube when this magazine came out. So I will seek that out. Well, you certainly taught me plenty about X-Files. And I guess what I learned is to stay away from the fanfic. I'm sorry I brought fanfic to your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But I do have to ask you this, because this is one thing that we didn't get into. What is your opinion, guys, of the post-Mulder and Scully seasons of the X-Files? Because didn't, like, Robert Patrick step in and take over at some point at the very end? Oh, man. I don't know. I don't revisit those a lot. I will say that season eight is more spooky than at any other point when they moved down to Los Angeles. So, you know, Vancouver has like this vibe to it. It's spooky. It's dark. It's cloudy, misty. It it has its own feel. And you move to Los Angeles and everything's like blown out and bright. They really try to bring it back to the dark side with season eight. So I will say that that's kind of cool. But it's seasons eight and nine are rough. They're rough. Well, we thank you, Annie and Steven, for being here. And Annie, if people want to find out more about your fanfic fandom or hear you talking about X-Files at length, where can they do that? Right. So I work for Audio Fanfic Podcast, where, yes, we read fanfic, kind of like an audiobook style, but we also give recommendations, dissect fic, all sorts of weird stuff. We interview writers. That's basically wherever you Listen to podcasts, Spotify, uh, Apple, SoundCloud. And then you have a new Fangirls Library podcast. What's that one all about? Yeah, that's a little less X-Files involved, or at least we're trying to move away from that. We we acknowledge our uh, fanfic roots, but we do try to branch out. And that is the Fangirls Library. And again, wherever you listen to podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, all of those. Steven, do you have an update on UFO Club? Uh, We're still in post-production. It's the big update. (laughs) Yes, the line for all indie filmmakers. But we're getting closer. You are nearing the end. We're close to the end. 
it's been a long post-production road because, you know, we all have full-time jobs and whatnot. Uh, we filmed some more shots over the weekend uh, to kind of fill in some gaps. So we're closing in. Well, you know where to find us, don't you? Yes, we're on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. And hey, have you been over to the Wizards Podcast YouTube page? You ought to be over there. You ought to be subscribed because we're bringing you all sorts of content on a weekly basis here now, just trying to give you updates on how the archives are growing and other fun stuff. But this was the Halloween issue of Wizard and contained within were the Halloween costume contest entrance. Yes, that was actually our most popular video and you heard me invite Michael on the last episode to do it again because it's obviously what you guys want to see and hear so we're going to be putting that together so make sure you're checking out the YouTube page and also by way of announcement uh you know Steven got to bring his wife here on the podcast finally what about my wife yes so we had the uh bad girls special coming up here by wizard and you know i thought you know i could talk to some guy to be kind of gross two guys talking about bad girls at length so why not get a female perspective and possibly put the future of the show in jeopardy <laughs> and so yes my wife dr Kristen, has agreed to be a part of this so you can look forward to that special bonus episode coming out in lieu of an episode of the wizard files so i hope that you enjoyed that discussion i did not know this I'm excited oh, that sounds for this. Exciting. But again, thank you both for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. And until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.